0: I want to thank you for having me and for encouraging us to do this pulpit swap that Alex and I do. We've done it three out of four years. I got bumped last year for Dr. Ellis, which I think was probably a wise move, Um, but I'm glad to be here with you again. And Alex is up with my congregation, North Hills up in Meridianville. And so it's just a joy uh, to be able to do this and to be with you. I also want to commend you on giving Alex a sabbatical, which will take place this summer. I had a a shorter sabbatical, a six-week sabbatical in 2018, and it just made a world of difference for me spiritually in my own walk with God um, and also the energy that I brought into ministry. After a while, you just get worn down, uh, bearing burdens and praying and serving. And so I, I believe that it will be a blessing not only for Alex and his family, but ultimately for this congregation. So I just want to commend you uh, for that. And where we find ourselves is not always easy, if if we're honest. Uh, where we find ourselves is not always an easy place to, to live with the different challenges that we have. And I've been reading in a book uh, by one of my seminary professors, Zach Eswine. He writes in a book on depression and about Charles Spurgeon. He said this that caught my attention, realistic hope... Is a Jesus saturated thing. Realistic hope is a Jesus saturated thing, and that's what I want this sermon to be about. As we turn to First Thessalonians chapter four, thirteen through eighteen, and I, my sermon title is that "Realistic Hope." Took it straight from that quotation. And this passage is one that's brought comfort and encouragement to the church for millennia, and I hope it will do so this. For us this morning, so if you have your Bibles turn to first Thessalonians chapter four thirteen through eighteen if you just want to listen i'm going to read this and follow along as Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so. will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our Lord stands forever. Join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity as your people and those gathered here in this place to hear your word, to receive your truth, to be encouraged and equipped to walk in this world. Despite the struggles that we have, the fears that cling to us, and sometimes we cling to. Father, we pray you would be with us and you would encourage us this morning so that we also might then be an encouragement to others, and I pray this in Jesus matchless name. Amen. I'd been carrying a kind of grief with me. It laid heavy on my heart, not the kind of grief that comes from a, a passing of a loved one to death, but it was still a painful reality that I was struggling with off and on. I had sought to shield myself, from that pain, unsuccessfully, it kept coming back again and again. And I was talking to a good friend on the phone, uh, he's another pastor out in another state and I was talking to him and I, I blurted out in this conversation as I was describing this grief and what I was feeling, I said, just tell me what to do to get over this feeling. Just tell me what to do. I just wanted some task list, something To accomplish so that I could move on. And he gently said, Adam, you know that is not how grief works. And I did know because I give the same counsel he was giving me to others in their grief. I know you can't just move on. You can't check a box and get over it. My grief was appropriate. And I needed to know that in trying to avoid it, I had prolonged it. In trying to reason that I was off track in the way that I was feeling, I missed the truth of God's word speaking into my grief. I realized that I've got to preach to myself sometimes. I've got to go back to the word And I've got to remind myself. And we also need others, like my friend was doing for me. We need others to point us to the realistic hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter as he's writing to the Thessalonians. And he's encouraging them. And they have real questions about death and life. And what it all means and what happens to those we lose. And these verses, again, as I've said, have provided comfort for thousands of years to God's people. And it's not an academic exercise. It's real life. And it's the word of God meeting his people in that place where they are at that moment. And that's especially true when we have real questions about life and death and our relationship to one another when we are separated, especially by death. And here's my theme this morning, my main point. I don't know what Alex calls it, but here's what I I call it, my theme. This is the main thing I want you to walk away with, this one statement, but I hope I can prove it, if you will, or show you. Because Christ will return... Our grief is infused with a realistic hope because Christ will return. Our grief is infused with a realistic hope. And I am talking to those of you who would claim a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning and you're seeking, you're questioning, you even have doubts, I hope you'll hear what real hope looks like. I want to talk about three things, the relevance of hope and the rise of hope and the return of hope. So first, the relevance of hope. I think hope is always relevant, especially in light of our most painful reality, that is death. And we see the relevance of hope in the empty seat, in the absence of hope, and the encouragement we so desperately need. It's not hard to imagine. Imagine we're not that far from Christmas, or it might be a birthday party, or an anniversary celebration, it's not hard to imagine the reality of someone who is missing. Sometimes it's pictured there in the very seat that someone used to occupy, and they're no longer there. That's what I mean when I say the empty seat. There's a time, as much as we might take joy in our celebrations, rightfully so, there's a time when those celebrations become... Bittersweet, sweet certainly for those that we are with, but bitter for those that are not with us and that we long for. And in that moment, is grief wrong? No, not at all. Grief is not wrong. And here in this passage, Paul gives a correction, but his correction to the Thessalonians isn't "don't grieve." That's not what it is. It's grieve. But do so in light of a greater reality. A a greater reality that fills our hearts. Uh, Nicholas Walterstoff's a philosopher and a Christian and he writes of losing his son Eric who died at the age of 25 in a, a tragic accident. And he says, I knew the traditional strategies for making sense of Eric's death. I could not accept them. It is this irrationality at the heart of grief that leads people who are not personally acquainted with grief to say to the person in grief, such things as no use crying over spilt milk. You can't bring him back. It is the same irrationality at the heart of grief that leads many in our society to regard the person in grief as needing therapy or counseling. Some grieving persons do need therapy because their grief is pathological. But grief is not pathological as such. And here's what he means. He says, if you are attached to your child, you will feel grief upon learning of his or her death. That is not pathology. This is human nature. And he goes on to write, how was I to live with this strange and painful intruder, grief? I was well aware that a common way of dealing with grief in our society, perhaps the most common way, is to try to disown one's grief. Note the language we use. Putting it behind you. Getting over it. Getting on with things. Getting on with your life. This is the language of disowning. The aim is to get to the point where one doesn't think of mentioning it when asked to identify the significant points in one's life. But I think I remember hearing that you lost a six-year-old son. Oh, yes, that's true. I had forgotten As if that would be possible. He says that is disowned grief. And see, that's the thing. Paul's not asking us to disown our grief. But what of those who have no hope? The the absence of hope is a, a real epidemic. It's not an old thing or a new thing. But I'll show you it's a thing. It's a human thing that is a reflection of our broken relationship with our creator and redeemer in a second century letter from a woman named Irene an Egyptian woman she's writing to a friend who has suffered the passing of a loved one and Irene understands she's lost people too and but she ends her letter this way but nevertheless against such things we can do nothing therefore comfort one another farewell I mean, that's some encouragement, right? You can't do anything, so comfort one another. Or the third century Greek poet Theocritus said, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. Oh, thank you, Mr. Greek poet. See, this was part of the concern that the Thessalonians had where the loved ones that they lost without hope. That was part of what was going on in their questions, but... The absence of hope still here. More recently, Professor Alex Rosenberg, he's at Duke University, so I imagine he's a smart guy. He writes in a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality, so maybe you have a sense of where he's coming from. He says, human beings are like meat robots. Again, thank you. That's helpful. Makes me feel warm inside. At the beginning of his book, he says, here's the question, what happens when we die? And here's his answer. He says, science teaches us that when we die, everything pretty much goes on the same as before except for you. You see what I'm saying? There's the absence of hope. And I don't bring that up to criticize these individuals, but just to say this is what ends up invading our hearts and our culture. These, of course, aren't the only ways to deal with grief and and loss. It certainly shows the absence of hope in the face of humanity's questions. We end up with hedonism or doubt or agnosticism or despair. What does Paul do? He speaks into our grief and the possible absence of our hope with an encouragement that we need. And I want to show you in this passage, he begins and ends with this, in this passage with encouragement that we need. So he says in verse 13, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as those do who have no hope. And then at the end, verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And we'll talk about those words that he wants to encourage. What has happened is Timothy, after the church was established, Timothy was sent back. They had been run out of town and so Timothy sent back to see how the church is doing and Timothy brings a report and they must have had questions that they were sharing and Paul is now addressing and he uses language that we may be familiar with or not, but when he speaks of those who are asleep, he's speaking of those who have died as language it's not a, a necessarily an only Christian way of speaking, but it certainly was a way that Jesus spoke and Paul spoke, and it became a way that Christians spoke of death. And there's some good reason for that. In the Gospel of John, for example, the whole Lazarus incident or event, Jesus is speaking. He says, says in this, John 11, After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that they meant he was taking rest in sleep. We know that Lazarus was dead and that Jesus raised him from his tomb. And so that's the language that is being used. They would know the reality of Lazarus' death and they would need the encouragement of Christ, wouldn't they? That they would need to know Christ's work and his power and his presence. And so Paul here is considering the questions and doubts that the Thessalonians may have. Their grief was real, as was their fear that those who had preceded them in death may not see or experience the glory of Christ in his return. That was the question. If Christ return and people have died, would they know the power and presence of Christ? There, see, there's implications to our questions. And there's implications to the answers that Paul gives. Theology is practical. And it does matter. And so we come to the end here again in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what I mean when I say theology is practical. Right there's a real encouragement that is needed and so Paul's telling the Thessalonians if I've encouraged you encourage one another. That, that's the role of the church. Right? When I'm having trouble believing the truth I need you to come and lift me up. Right? And I want to come and do the same for you. God's word here and elsewhere is what informs our hope and gives us the truth to comfort others with. Encourage Here in verse eighteen is the Greek word parakaleo. Actually, Paul's, uh, Paul not Paul, Alex is preaching on the Spirit's work at North Hills, and I'm grateful for for where we understand this nature of God's comfort and His encouragement. But Kent Hughes illustrates the root idea of to come alongside and encourage. He says, "I see this exemplified every time my church has a roller skating party." and the parents put their little ones on skates for the first time. Mom and dad skate with their child, holding on to his or her hands, sometimes with the child's feet on the ground and sometimes in the air, but all the time the parents are alongside encouraging. That's the picture. We will need to come alongside someone, alongside one another, at times, taking each other by the hand and leading us to Jesus Christ. And that's the relevance of hope. But I also want to mention the rise of hope. Hope is always relevant. We will come face to face with grief and loss, but the gospel is and remains good news for us. For our hope has already come. Our hope has already risen So Paul writes in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul here is speaking of God's past action and his future promise. The past action is to go back to the birth of Christ, his coming. Now Paul doesn't specifically mention the birth of Christ, but the fact that Christ came, We have to see his coming. It's implicit here. But what he presses into is the central truth, the central reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which requires faith on our part. Faith to believe that it matters. Not just that it happened, but that it matters for now, for right now, today, where we are. That's why he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Without that belief, it's hard to have a realistic hope. You go back to these other ways of coping, and it's understandable. And I don't fault any of us for going there. But faith is required to know the rise of hope and the work of God in his past action. We must trust in the work of God to know the comfort of his promise Paul's already affirmed the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus Christ when he began this letter, and he wants to encourage them further in their hope. And so now he points to God's future promise. Now, the return of Christ here is a major theme in this book. At the end of chapter 1, and the end of chapter 2, and the end of chapter 3, and now the end of chapter 4, Paul speaks of the return of Christ. So it's a major theme as he thinks of the promise of the return Of Jesus Christ, but now he's making specific application to the church. He's pressing directly into the hurt and grief of this church, but he does so with the healing balm of the gospel. Jesus has already come once. He has already died. He's already been resurrected from the grave. So there is some force then behind Paul's words. If God's promise is that Christ will return again, and you're saying, well, is God trustworthy? Can I believe what God has promised to do? You look back and you see what Christ has done. Is this... I appreciate Alex leaving that for me. You see, one follows the others, doesn't it? It's all through... Jesus, that God will work and continue his work. And secondly, I don't want to create any trouble. So it's not my purpose here. All right. It seems to me, though, that Paul's purpose is not to help us fill out our Bible prophecy timelines and the like, nor to present an exhaustive list of a manual for end times. Right. His purpose is to provide hope. And comfort in Christ to the church. And I will say that sometimes there's an unhealthy focus on things that are debatable. And we need to focus on the things that are sure. And Christ is sure. What is not up for debate among Orthodox Christians is that Christ will return. Which means a reunion and rest. And so reunion here, verse 15 Paul writes, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's speaking with authority here. Is this a revealed word from the Lord to Paul? Possibly. Is he speaking of something from the Gospels? Possibly. There's not a direct correlation. But in either case, he's declaring to the church. He's speaking with authority, with a direct answer to their concerns. And there's a sequence that he speaks of. So he says that this is what's going to happen. The Lord is going to come. And we who are left until the coming of the Lord, we're not going to proceed, he says. There's a sequence. We're not going to proceed those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. Then he goes on, verse 16, the beginning of 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will rise we'll, or he we'll be caught up together. That word caught up is where we get the word rapture from a Latin translation, just so you know, we'll be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is speaking of this reunion that we will experience. Christ descends. He's already descended. He's already condescended once for us and for his humanity. He will do so again. He completes his work as the ascended son of God, as our deliverer. This doesn't seem to be some secret event either. right? There's a shout, there's an archangel, there's a trumpet. right? This will be known. And there will be a reunion of those who belong to Christ and Christ himself when he returns. And see, that's our hope in Christ. We will be reunited with Christ and with his people. That's our hope. That's what we when we feel the pain of loss, we look to Christ and see what he has promised to do. And there will be a reunion. And there will be rest for us. At the end of verse 17, Paul says, So we will always be with the Lord. Who? We. We will always be with the Lord. See, that loved one that you long for, it will be we who are united to Christ. It will be complete and it will be eternal and we will be at rest in Him. That's why I love the Heidelberg Catechism question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that not that, that without his will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready From now on to live for him. What a beautiful reminder. That our grief. Can be infused with this kind of realistic hope. If you know the chronicles of Narnia. In the fourth chair. The silver chair. Eustace Scrub. Having learned some hard lessons. He returns to Narnia. And there he and a girl named Jill. Jill embark on a quest to rescue Prince Rillian. He's the son of King Caspian from Prince Caspian. And he's been suffering under the curse of the Emerald Witch. And he's been held captive there for ten years with the aid of an enchanted chair. Eustace and Jill and this creature named Puddlegum are sent by Aslan to find Rillian and bring him back to Narnia. And Aslan gives them four signs... Which they are to remember and obey. Of course, they soon forget. As we are prone to forget the things that God has given to us. Right? Aslan tells Jill in the second chapter, pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. But they forget. And they're beset with many dangers on this journey. But in the end, the chair is destroyed. The captives are set free. Grace prevails. And Prince Rillian's traveling with them after he's been freed. And they're traveling back. It's still a difficult journey. Full of challenges. And Prince Rillian says, courage, friends. Whether we live or die, Aslan will be our good Lord. See, that's the central truth that propels them Forward. Do you believe the same about our Lord Jesus Christ? Will you allow that to propel you forward knowing that because Christ will return, our grief is infused with a realistic hope? Courage, friends. Whether we live or die, the Lord Jesus will be our good Lord. Christ will return. Know His goodness, His promise. And his compassion for you. Right now. Right here. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you that you indeed are a mighty God and you are still at work. Yes, we experience trial and trouble and we know grief. We suffer loss and it hurts. Father, would you come near to us by your spirit while we wait for Christ to return and make all things new? While we wait for the rise and return of our hope in full completion. Lord, infuse our grief with this real hope that can only be found in you. Father, we praise you and we thank you. And we pray you'd be with us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.